Welcome to Civil War Talk Radio with host Jerry Prokopovich. Our program covers all aspects of Civil War history, from the battlefields to the home fronts, and features guest experts, plus insight from your host as they discuss the most critical period in American history. Now, here is your host, Jerry Prokopovich. This is Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich. On Belle Isle, the beautiful island park in the Detroit River near the downtown of the Motor City, there's a very splendid equestrian statue, but unfortunately the number of Detroiters who know who he is may be smaller than the number of games the Detroit Tigers will win this season, and that is not very many. Fortunately, listeners to this show have at least heard of Brigadier General Alpheus S. Williams, and we'll bring him into the spotlight tonight in a conversation with Jack Dempsey, author of Michigan's Civil War Citizen General Alpheus Alpheus S. Williams. And that's tonight on Civil War Talk Radio. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Are you ready for a disaster? If you are like many people in the world, that answer may sadly be no. Disasters happen unexpectedly to people just like you every day. Tune into Preparing for the Unexpected with business continuity and disaster planning expert Alex Bullock. The show will not only help you better prepare for a disaster itself, but also to prepare you, your place of employment, and community for the aftermath emotionally, financially, and with a better level of awareness and a stronger feeling of resiliency. Tune in Thursdays at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. We're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all of our show archives on demand. All from your iOS, Amazon Kindle, or Android device. Download it from the Apple App Store, Amazon, or Google Play, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, coming to you tonight from our usual headquarters on the third floor of the Brewster Building, Office A320, on the campus of East Carolina University in Greenville, North Carolina. But not speaking for ECU, or anyone else, as always, speaking only for myself, and our guest will do the same tonight. It is a uh, beautiful evening in September 2019. It's very, uh, uh, still, the sun is still up here at 7 o'clock Eastern Time as we record this. Uh, there are a few clouds in the sky, a nice sunset, and it's not beastly hot. Uh, the first fall day, probably, uh, here in North Carolina. 
personally, it's a bit of a, a tough week. I'm headed up to Michigan uh, to the, the hometown uh, to oversee the uh, closing of the sale of the the ancestral home of my parents' home, uh, uh, doing that uh, tomorrow and Friday. And it, it, uh, it brings to mind uh, the, the whole history of, of one's own uh, one's own time, including the first exposure to the history of the Civil War, going to Antietam uh, with the family, uh, stopping there during a road trip to uh, uh, the experience that got me started in this this uh, pursuit of Civil War history, this lifelong journey. So uh, it, it's a, a bittersweet time. Here on campus, it is... Uh, the uh, the sweetness of clobbering a Division two school a few weeks ago was somewhat uh, edge taken off by having uh, Navy beat the UN the, the ECU football team as they do every year by an absurd score, uh, redeemed slightly by the ECU women winning another soccer match, beating UNC Charlotte one nothing. And I misspoke last week when I said they beat Charlotte last week. It was UNC Asheville that they beat last week. And tonight, as we speak, they are playing NC State, uh, bitter state rivalry. Uh, won't know how that's going to end until after the show. My alma mater had a great week, I will say. Uh, University of Michigan, no fumbles, no turnovers. Uh, they achieved this by having a bye week last week and not playing a game at all. So uh, we'll see if they can keep that up. It's your last chance to go uh, to the Civil War Roundtable Congress annual event. The 2019 version is September 20 through 22nd. So if you're listening live or in the next day or two, you've still got time to go to St. Louis, Missouri and participate in this event. Uh, If you don't do that, you can look ahead to May of 2020 and think about this hallowed ground. Uh, tour presented by the Stephen Ambrose Historical Tours Company. You can think about the Civil War Institute at Gettysburg College in June 2020. Lots to look forward to in the year ahead, and a lot to look forward to here on Civil War Talk Radio. Uh, Next week, September 25th, Matthew Fox Amato will be talking with us about his uh, his visual work, a, a book called Exposing Slavery, Photography, Human Bondage, and the Birth of Modern Visual Politics in America. It's a book you have to really look at to appreciate. And I want to send my apologies to Dr. Amato uh, for initially uh, uh giving him the wrong date for appearing on the show, and I appreciate his flexibility. He'll be with us next week. James Broomall, the week after that, Private Confederacies, The Emotional Worlds of Southern Men as Citizens and Soldiers. On the 9th of October, Joe Goodbody has a book about a remarkable character, Parker H. French, the Kentucky Barracuda. On the 16th of of October, uh, friend of the show, Hampton Newsom, returns. His new book is called The Fight for the Old North State, Civil War in North Carolina in January to May 1864. Uh, just added to the schedule, S.C. Gwynn, with a book titled Hymns of the Republic, the Story of the Final Year of the American Civil War. This was just uh, published. In fact, actually not, not out. It'll just be coming out uh, the week that we talk with him. Uh, published by Scribner, and rounding out the month of October, a very timely book, uh, Kevin M. Levin returns to the show. His new book is called Searching for Black Confederates, the Civil War's Most Persistent Myth. 
this past week or so, uh, Kevin has been at the center of a major dust-up on uh, on Twitter over the role of the Internet in Civil War scholarship. And an article published in one of the academic journals of the field in Civil War history from Kent State University, uh, an article uh, by Earl Hess had some unflatter quoted some unflattering things about a blog that uh, that uh, Kevin Levin produces, uh, the Civil War Memory blog. It's a very useful one, and it it led to a lot of debate over the the author of the article's conclusion that the internet isn't hasn't had much impact on Civil War scholarship. I know if we were to take a poll of listeners to the show, how many of you have used the internet to listen to a podcast um, dealing with the Civil War? The percentage would, of course, be 100. Uh, And so I I think a lot of the question of how useful one finds the internet for Civil War studies depends on where you seek out your audience. We'll certainly talk with Kevin about that, uh, that current affair. Hopefully by then it'll have settle down a little bit, we can have uh, more light than heat on the subject. But lots coming up. Uh, you can always find out what's happening on Civil War Talk Radio from uh, www.impedimentsofwar.org or the Impediments of War Facebook page, both maintained by Mark Gaffney, who is a, a long-time uh, right arm of the show and keeping the, the website, the Facebook page going. Uh, he also keeps there a, uh, a button you can click on the website where you can uh, donate uh, to the Civil War Talk Radio Book Fund, the, the so-called book fund. I should put that in quotation marks or air quotation marks or something because I may use it to buy books, but I may use it for anything else. Um, time to buy a new uh, new tablet, a new small computer, for example. The last one I bought, the $80 next book special, is about reach the end of its useful life. None of the functions work anymore. So uh, your $5 monthly contribution, if you see fit to do that, will help help me stay in touch when I'm on the road or help me buy a hamburger when I'm on the road. can't tell you what I'll do with it. Well, tonight we talk with another old friend of the show, uh, Jack Dempsey returns to tell us more about the role of the Wolverine state in the Civil War, or at least that has been his topic in the past. And tonight it's a specific uh, Michigan uh, citizen general, Michigan's Civil War citizen general, Alpheus S. Williams is the name of the book. And uh, it's a, a pleasure to have Jack back with us. Jack, are you there? Yes, I am, Jerry. Good to be back with you. Oh, well, welcome back. Uh, I hope the, the weather is as nice up in Michigan as it is here in North Carolina tonight. It's uh, finally not too hot. Uh, usually that first not too hot day in Michigan comes in mid-August. Uh, here, we don't get it till September. It's a beautiful day here, actually. It feels like summer has returned somehow. So we're enjoying um, what used to be called, well, maybe it's supposed to be called Native American summer now. I, I think Indian summer probably will still do for, for most okay. people. Uh, speaking of summer, the, uh, the summer uh, issue of the, the Hallowed Ground, the publication of the American Battlefield Trust, and I know a lot of listeners uh, receive that magazine because they contribute to the, the Battlefield Trust, formerly the Civil War uh, Preservation, uh, the Civil War Trust. And uh, you had a, a, a piece in that, uh, in that publication. Uh, can you tell Tell us what that was. 
Yes, that was a piece that talked about how when Williams and uh, his first division of the 20th Corps were making their way through Virginia after surrender, the surrender of Lee and and uh, and Johnston's surrender, um, they were on a path that took them through several battlefields, um, the wilderness and Chancellorsville. Uh, Williams wasn't at, wasn't part of the Overland campaign, but he was a key player at Chancellorsville. And so I thought it was fascinating to read the accounts of how the soldiers wanted to see what had happened um, at these two sites. Some had been there because they were with the 12th Corps um, at Chancellorsville, but most of them were not since they were um, they were out west when that happened. So here's an example of in uh, April, May 1865, how the soldiers who fought in the war were keenly interested in battlegrounds and going to those locations and, and talking about and uh, trying to think about what happened on that site. So I thought it fascinating and a real uh, bolster to the idea that the Civil War Trust, now the American Battlefield Trust, is doing God's work by saving this this kind of hallowed ground. Soldiers being the very first preservationists, wanting, to, wanting the land that they had fought over, that their comrades had fought over to be preserved, and recognizing how much there was to learn from that. Um, well, that takes us to the end of the uh, uh, of Williams's Civil War career. Let's move back uh, to the beginning. I enjoyed reading this book and was uh, struck in reading the first chapters about the beginnings of uh, of uh, Williams's life. He attended Yale, which I understand is a very good school. Listeners um, may <laughs> not, not be aware though. that I've. It's not Harvard, uh, just in, in case people are unaware. I actually attended Harvard at one time, thought I'd mention that. Uh, but what really struck me was the, the reminder of what a small country the United States was in the 1830s uh, with a population of, of, of a few dozen million instead of 300 million. Williams becomes friends with and, and eventually tours Europe with uh, Henry Wyckoff and Edwin Forrest. And uh, uh, who were those two people? Uh, well, Forrest was one of the great American actors, a, a forerunner to the Booth brothers, and was renowned for his um, performances in the theater. So he was, in a sense, one of the movie stars of the day. And so for Williams to have made his acquaintance, be a friend, travel around Europe together, uh, it was quite fascinating to me. And then uh, this other individual, Wyckoff or Wyckoff, um, was um, wealthy because of inheritance. Um, I think he was a bit of a, uh, I don't know if I'd say scoundrel, but he was much into enjoying his inheritance, spending it. And so he and Williams and Forrest uh, went through Europe together, um, saw the sights, Williams paid some particular interest to military affairs. So I think you see his interest very early when he was still in his 20s. And then um, there's a probably a confusion between the Williams story and the Wyckoff or Wyckoff story in that um, 
Williams was alleged to have spent a $75,000 inheritance that he received from his father. And I think one of the things I take pride in in my books is doing research, whether it's on the Internet or in a library, and finding things that um, tell more accurate stories. So he did not receive that amount of an inheritance. He did not misspend it. And I think sort of that blotch on his character uh, that's been carried down through various accounts has proven to be false. But what a fascinating troop of characters to go through uh, the early life together. So, so who, um, where did you find that? I, I, in my notes, I said, did that appear in the, the, the doctoral dissertation about Williams, uh, the mistake that he was the one who inherited a large fortune and wasted it, or did that appear in earlier writings? Where, where did you see that? It, it appeared pretty early, um, huh. and I think it's one of those rumors or myths that just gets circulated. But how I determined that it was false and you'll appreciate this as a fellow uh, counselor, barrister, or at least with a law degree, mm-hmm. I went back to the source, the, the probate records in New England, and actually looked up the, the records with the assistance of the local historical society. And as it turns out, there are documents showing what he received, both from his father and his mother, and it was just several thousand dollars, not 75000 So it's always good to go back to the original sources, and I think, as was it James Madison said, facts are uh, ugly things because you really can't can't uh, fight the facts when you have them. No, they, they, uh, they, they ideally, that's how they ought to be treated. Uh, well, we're going to take a short break, come back, talk more about the Civil War career of Alpheus S. Williams with our guest tonight, Jack Dempsey, author of Michigan Civil War Citizen General, Alpheus S. Williams. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com Have we got a high-energy, all-access sports show for you? It's Outside the Huddle, starring Lemond Williams. Each week, join Lemond as he takes callers, discusses the week's top stories in the world of sports, and sits down with active and former players to discuss their transition from sports to business. Outside the Huddle is a great resource for players making career transitions both on and off the field. Tune in Wednesdays at 8 p.m. Eastern, 7 Central, and 5 Pacific. For Outside the Huddle on the Voice America Sports Channel. Psych Up Live with host Dr. Suzanne Phillips offers a psychological perspective on coping with common and current life issues. This show addresses topics as varied as marital stress, insomnia, depression, raising teens, campus violence, and building self-resilience. Listen in as Dr. Phillips and her guest experts share the latest in books, findings, and information that will inform and enhance your life journey. Psych Up Live is heard every Thursday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have you had a chance to check out Voice America's online magazine and blog? If you love our hosts and shows, check out articles that give an even deeper perspective. 
plus topics about health and fitness, movie reviews, philosophy, business tips and tactics, spirituality, positive thought, current events, and even more about your favorite hosts. It's just a click away at blog.voiceamerica.com. That's blog.voiceamerica.com. The Voice America Press Blog. All access, all the time. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at ecu edu. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking with Jack Dempsey, author of Michigan's Civil War's Citizen General, Alpheus S. Williams. Uh, Williams, uh, who educated at Yale, moved west to, uh, to Michigan, to Detroit, uh, but first, as we said in the first segment, traveled around Europe with uh, actor Edwin Forrest and uh, Henry Wyckoff, or perhaps Wyckoff, I guess I've heard it both ways pronounced as well. Uh, Jack, when you said Wyckoff was a, a scoundrel, perhaps, uh, that, that would be putting it mildly, I would think, because uh, when I first saw the name, I thought, is that the same guy who uh, bewitched Mary Lincoln in the White House, uh, who, who was described as one of... Uh, uh, Mrs. Lincoln's charlatans in a popular website. Uh, he was nicknamed Chevalier uh, Wyckoff uh, for because he'd been to Europe, I guess. And and he was, yeah, he, he was definitely a, a a slick operator and uh, a bad guy. And here he is hanging out with Williams. So, so fascinating to find that out. Uh, another thing I was interested to learn was uh, about Williams' politics, that he was a Whig before the war, as many uh, uh, Americans who were politically active were. But when the Whig party disintegrated, he did not join the Republicans. Why Why didn't he go with almost, with, with the great majority of Whigs into the, uh, into the Republican party? Did you get any feel for that? I think I have some feel, but I don't really have what I'd consider to be the conclusive answer. I think uh, if you follow what happened, he was still part of the effort to hold the Whig Party together in Michigan, in Detroit. So he was sort of one of those diehards that said uh, we need to still um, keep that that political effort together. So he did not join the Republican Party. He, he did not take Lincoln's path. Um, and in part, I think it's just because he was concerned about what um, the the idea of this new political party might do to the country. Would it split the nation in two? And given his New England roots, um, his his patriotic um, fervor for the nation, his militia service, Mexican War service. Um, rising to the top rank pre-war in the Michigan military, state military. I just think he felt that it was too extreme a platform, and so he maintained his Whigism, in effect, and uh, became a Democrat. It may also have something to do with 
the fact that the Democratic Party in Detroit was the strongest, that was its strongest location. So perhaps from an electoral standpoint, um, he thought that that might be more successful than, than changing parties to the Republicans. Now, you mentioned uh, his, his militia service, his Mexican War service. That put him in position to be uh, a, a leader in the recruiting of troops at the beginning of the war. Uh, talk about how he responded when the, when the war broke out. Sure. Um, yeah, right after Fort Sumter, the governor, Austin Blair, came to Detroit, and there were efforts to figure out how Michigan could respond uh, certainly how it could respond to Lincoln's call for uh, troops, 75,000 troops uh, nationally. And a number of leaders in Detroit and around Michigan um, mounted that effort to respond very uh, proactively and, and generously. Williams was in that group. And because of his uh, his military background, even though he hadn't gone to West Point, he hadn't been in the U.S. Army, he was appointed by the governor, to be the chief recruiting officer. Um, and so he organized the camp of instruction at, at Fort Wayne along the Detroit River. Uh, he went across the state organizing and then uh, accompanying troops as they left for the front. And so really, um, at, at the age of about 50, here he is, the preeminent military man uh, in Detroit um, behind Michigan's readiness and response to sending volunteer troops off to fight for the Union. But but he wanted to go himself, so uh, what, how, how did he get himself into action? Yeah, that's also fascinating, because he could have stayed behind, um, given his age, the fact that uh, he was a widower, uh, he had kids to support who were not, um, who were still young, but I guess, again, because of the kind of character he, he had, uh, he volunteered to uh, take a commission and fight um, at the front line. So he went to Washington, lobbied for a commission, had support from several leading uh, Michiganders, and was able, with all that support, to receive a brigadier general commission, along with a, a few other fellows, um, by the name of U.S. Grant and so forth in the same batch of appointments. And then instead of uh, being uh, in command of a Michigan unit or brigade, as he had hoped, he was um, sent off to um, to lead troops from other states, and that's really what happened the rest of the war. He, he never really served or led a Michigan unit, but he, he won the uh, respect of pretty much every uh, soldier, uh, who served under him, whether they were from New England or the Midwest or wherever. So, as a, a brigadier general, and, and you know, listeners to the show will will know that there there are really two ranks of generals in the United States Army, and the volunteer forces: the, the brigadier general, one star; major general, two stars. So, he starts as a brigadier general, perfectly reasonable, uh, and and uh, then you also mentioned the the children. I'd, one reason, if, if people know anything about Williams, it may be from uh, the letters that he wrote home to his family, uh, uh, to his children, since his wife uh, had died. That uh, that the book of Williams's letters uh, from the cannon's mouth, edited by by Milo Quaife, is just an outstanding collection of letters. I, did that was that the thing that got you started on Williams, or did you? 
come across that book as you were doing the research? I was aware of that book for for many years, actually, and it's because I had the Bison Books reprint, the University of Nebraska um, paperback, which I think was published around 1999 or 2000. Um, I'd read that. I'd read a lot of uh, footnotes that, that uh, pointed out that Williams is a source of an excellent quote. Um, in fact, in the reprint, Gary Gallagher pretty much calls the book a classic and suggests that uh, pretty much every um, major Civil War author who wants to provide some colorful anecdote had quoted a Williams letter, which were sent home to his daughters or some other relative. So what hasn't, what hadn't happened is a real biography of Williams ever made its way into print. And as you mentioned, there was a dissertation uh, written at Michigan State University, which was not published. I found that helpful. Um, and then the letters and other materials that are available in libraries really across the country, as far west as California and, of course, as far east as New England. So I knew about him. I knew about him when I was writing the first book. Um, but I really didn't find out the dimensions of his contributions or really the, the poignancy of his story until digging into it um, with, with all of this research that uh, began before the 2005 book on Antietam that Brian Egan and I wrote, and then just continued forward into uh, early this year. Well, the, the uh, yeah, the, the letters volume it certainly merited that re- reprinting by Bison Books that Gary Gallagher introduced. I had the an edition, an older edition, on my shelf for years and years before I actually read it, and then I was just amazed how. Uh, wonderful all the letters were and how much he wrote how, how every day no matter what's going on in the campaign he would find time to write these lengthy letters back home that were so well done uh, but I was also struck and you may have been also in the introduction to the original one which I think was 1961 maybe 1960 uh, the, the editor says well here are all the good parts of Williams's letters meaning all the military parts, we've left out the parts where he just talks with his family about family things because nobody cares about that sort of stuff uh, in so many words. And it's just striking how the Civil War history field has evolved where today uh, most historians would really want to know more about the the relationships between the home front and the the soldiers, between Williams and his daughters. Uh, We would care a lot about them, not just regard them as, you know, personal trivia as they were thought of uh, 70 years ago. That's excellent. And it may be that it was some reference on this very show to the fact that um, those personal details were left out of the the original Quaif volume that motivated me to dig more into it. I do recall hearing that or reading that somewhere about how um, historiography has changed a lot and now we're interested in much more of the complete story than simply what happened at a certain day at a certain battlefield. So it could be uh, this podcast really affected that. It certainly has affected me in other ways. So I well, want to well, congratulate you on your longevity and the popularity of the show. Well, thank you. I appreciate it very much. And it, it's, it is the books and the authors who make the show, uh, and listeners already know that. So we'll, uh, moving forward, the uh, Williams 
you know, while his, his relationship to the home life is, is fascinating, he also does seem to show up on uh, at, at battle after battle. He's in the, the valley in 1862 at Winchester, uh, rises to division command, fights Stonewall Jackson at Cedar Mountain. But it's at Antietam that we really see him coming into in, into focus as a, a major uh, participant in the war. Uh, for one thing, he's well. He plays a big role in, in Special Orders One Ninety One in finding Lee's secret plan. Tell us about that. So the the document is found by a soldier in the Twelfth Corps in the Indiana Regiment and carried up the line. It makes its way to Williams's uh, aide, um, who's able to identify and verify the signature of a, of a Robert Chilton Lee's adjutant on the document. So really amazing coincidence of history that the document comes into the possession of a Union officer who's in a position to say, yeah, this is genuine. This is not a ruse. And so he takes it to Williams, and there's no hesitation. Williams believes his friend and his colleague, his adjutant, and dashes off uh, a note to McClellan and verifies, vouches for the accuracy of the, the document and urges him to, um, to, to move forward. Um, you know, it's a document of interest and is no doubt genuine, is what he said. And receiving that, McClellan really, I think, um, acts fairly uncharacteristically to move out and um, pushes Lee into a position that Lee did not anticipate. He didn't think McClellan would move so fast. So receipt of that, verification of that document, and then sending it up to McClellan for action, I think is a major contribution to what happened at Antietam and, of course, issuance of the Preliminary Emancipation Proclamation. So at Antietam, uh, Williams is commanding a division in the 12th Corps, which at this point is being led by, by General Mansfield. Uh, Mansfield is wounded early on, so, so we find uh, Williams in command of the Corps, at least temporarily, is this the first time he's commanded that many troops that he's in Corps command at Antietam? No, actually, um, when he was under Nathaniel Banks uh, in the Army, the ill-fated Army of Virginia, uh, he had temporary command of the Second Corps, and then when it was reconstituted into the Twelfth Corps and formed uh, into the Army of the Potomac um, for I think three or four days prior to Antietam, uh, as they were marching try to find the Confederates, he commanded the Corps. And when Mansfield was appointed, he went back to division uh, command, um, so was completely unaware of whatever strategy, whatever orders McClellan had for the Corps or um, really any other part of the, uh, the Army. And so when he was thrust into command early on the day of September 17th, um, he really had little guidance and had to do the best he could with what he saw and, and what his own instincts and training had told him to do. He does you know, relatively well. The 12th Corps performs its mission, helps out Hooker's 1st Corps up around the Miller's Cornfield, eventually gets a division almost into Sharpsburg itself. It, it holds its ground. 
uh, it doesn't get smashed as uh, uh, the second core does, doesn't fail at its mission all day as, as Burnside's wing does. But afterwards, we don't we don't hear much about Williams, even though he, he played this major role in the battle. And this is a, the motif that runs through the book. We just don't hear about this general, even though he plays a major role in the battle. Why, why is that? This is perhaps the first uh, example of what happened to him because of the, the failure in leadership of the commanding generals under whom he served. When McClellan wrote his uh, initial report, he really overlooked Williams and complimented some of his own favorites. And, of course, McClellan was then dismissed um, soon after the battle. So when he wrote his complete report, um, it was in 1863, and he had no interest in promoting Williams's um, uh, service. Um, the other generals that he served under, Hooker at Chancellorsville, uh, Hooker never wrote an official report of the battle. So, of course, Hooker's performance was rather um, lacking. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we come down to Gettysburg, which uh, I don't know if you want to talk about now, but that's the most shocking uh, example of mistreatment of a subordinate general by a commanding general that I think I've ever seen, at least in the Civil War context. I, I think that's not an unreasonable conclusion, and that this is a good place uh, uh, to take a break, and so we can come back and focus on that, which is really central to the story. Uh, what what Williams did at Gettysburg and how he was treated in the aftermath uh, really are, are dramatic. So we'll take a break here. We'll come back, talk more with our guest, Jack Dempsey, author of Michigan Civil War Citizen General, Alpheus S. Williams. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, and this is Civil War Talk Radio. <laughs> Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Attention, if you're a parent, educator, social worker, or civic or religious leader, the most important program you'll hear this week is Exploited, Crimes Against Humanity. Host Opal Singleton and her guest show how our children and others are being dangerously lured by predators through the dark web, social media apps, and games. Beyond that, the program looks at trends in human trafficking and more. You'll never think of the Internet the same way again. Listen Thursdays at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. These days, everyone is looking for information on staying young, healthy, and fit. The Voice America Health and Wellness Network is here to help you on your quest to better health and a better you. We talk about everything from diet, fitness, and aging to substance abuse, personal growth, mental health, and much more. Learn from our experts who cover health and wellness from traditional and holistic perspectives. Tune in to the Voice America Health and Wellness Network. Healthy living starts here. 
Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Civil War Talk Radio. If you have a question or comment about our program, please send an email to prokopovichg at ecu dot edu. That's P-R-O-K-O-P-O-W-I-C-Z-G at E-C-U dot E-D-U. Now, back to Civil War Talk Radio. And welcome back to Civil War Talk Radio. I'm Jerry Prokopovich, talking tonight with Jack Dempsey, the author of Michigan's Civil War Citizen General, Alpheus S. Williams. Williams, not a West Pointer, but a man with some military experience, uh, ends up temporarily in command of a corps uh, in in the Army of Virginia at one point in the Antietam campaign uh, and uh, again at Gettysburg where the the 12th Corps to which he belongs is uh, led by uh, Slocum as, as most listeners know uh, but General Slocum is appointed to command a wing two corps at a time leaving uh, Williams in command of 12th Corps. So everything 12th Corps does during this battle really uh, is, is under Williams' direction. And, and just refresh our, our memories uh, of the role that that Corps plays in the battle. Sure. The, the main role it plays is anchoring the right flank of the Union position on Culp's Hill, um, holding it on the second and third days, and... Um, preventing uh, the Confederates um, from reaching the Baltimore Pike, which I don't think anybody disagrees would be the key to forcing a Union retreat, because that was the main uh, Union supply line, as I understand it. So Williams um, actually is directed by me to support the Union Center um, midday on the second day, um, it turns out he's not really needed there, but he's in command of some troops who depart the right wing when they or the right flank when they get back. They find the Confederates have taken part of that position. So early uh, on the morning of July third, um, Williams mounts an attack uh, on the part of the 12th Corps to take back the position, and it takes five or six hours to accomplish that, but it is successful. They drive off the the uh, Confederates, and so they hold that right flank. Um, He also participates in the famous Council of War. He's invited to the uh, Meade's headquarters that night, July 2nd, and as a junior corps commander, he's one of the first to offer his his recommendations on what the Army should do, and he is one of those who says, stay and fight. So I think his role at Gettysburg is really uh, as significant as pretty much any other corps commander, uh, other general. And yet when Meade turns in his official report on October 1, um, I think it's Slocum that receives one mention, um, almost in passing, and Williams' name doesn't even appear in the report. And I should say that's notwithstanding the fact that Williams turned in a division report and a corps report. So uh, there's no excuse for Meade or his staff not to include what happened on the on the right wing. 
And as, as Williams himself points out, there are a number of uh, other generals who temporarily ascend to corps command, and they all get mentioned, and all the regular corps commanders get mentioned, and Williams gets nothing. Exactly. And it's particularly strange in that it appears that uh, George Gordon Meade and Alpheus S. Williams were really friendly. They knew each other in pre-war Detroit. Meade was uh, in the Engineer Corps doing the Great Lakes survey. And when Williams first assumes command in the fall of 1861, he parks his tent not far from Meade, and they visit each other. So of all the commanders that uh, you would think would um, want to uh, praise um, Williams's performance, Meade would have been the one, and he oh, he completely uh, fails in that. So, to conclude the story, what happens later is uh, Slocum and, and Williams turn in supplemental reports at the end of 1863, and they point out that Meade has really um, done a disservice to the 12th Corps, and uncharacteristic for Meade, instead of defending what he did. Um, he really kind of apologized to Williams and talks about how much he regretted um, not mentioning him. Um, but it's too late, really. I mean, the people have begun to form their opinions about what happened, the, the high water mark, what happened at Little Round Top, and I think down through history, down to today probably, what happened on the right flank um, on the second and third days of the battle has really not been properly recognized. Well, you, you point out one of the, the stories we all learned from traditional accounts of the battle is how uh, the Confederates could have won on the first day if they just pushed on through Gettysburg with the the attack of Early's division. It just kept going forward. And uh, by by putting the blame on, on uh, General Ewell, this avoids putting blame on Lee, but in fact, as you point out here, uh, Williams has troops on the flank of, of the forces in Gettysburg. If, if Early had continued to push on uh, ahead, he would have walked into an ambush, and, and uh, Williams was right there. But he is conveniently ignored because that makes a better story by which you can blame Ewell instead of Lee for the Confederate defeat. Uh, so this pattern happens uh, again and again. We see... Uh, Williams is getting overlooked. His, his corps gets sent out west to, uh, you know, with, with Hooker to be part of what will become Sherman's army going to the sea. And again, uh, now they, his division, uh, Williams's division, is now part of the 20th Corps. And once again, he's in temporary command uh, uh, time after time, but never, never made permanent. He's never promoted to major general, and he's never given a permanent corps command. What, what's going on? Well, that's a good question, and uh, I think um, there's no definitive answer, again, to that kind of question, other than the fact that he was not a West Pointer. Uh, he was a Democrat. Um, he did not have a patron who was of sufficient weight to influence what happened in Washington. And for some reason... I think he was on Edwin Stanton's um, uh, list of those who should not receive any, any favorable treatment, even though, of course, Stanton was a Democrat um, pre-war. And, um, so I think if a Grant or a Sherman, 
someone like that of that stature had asked for his promotion, he probably would have gotten that second star and not just a brevet. After all, as you point out, he he commanded under Sherman for almost, um, what is it, probably five months on the march to the sea and then through the Carolinas. Uh, He performs uh, really uh, without fault during all of that. Um, One of the things I tried to bring out in the book is how he was part of the liberation of slaves, and he did not um, misbehave like another Union general did by pulling up the pontoon bridge across the river and leaving uh, leaving the escaping slaves to the mercy of the Confederate cavalry. So he's not a, a abolitionist, um, but he does uh, end up, I think, very positively looking at the role that African Americans could play in American society. Uh, which you'd think would uh, endear him to somebody like Stanton, but that wasn't the case. Yeah, that's an interesting point. Uh, you mentioned that in connection with the Emancipation Proclamation. He's uh, the, Williams is not an abolitionist and not even a, and not a Republican, uh, not a member of the the anti-slavery party. But he is not sympathetic to slavery, and he does become increasingly sympathetic to the the enslaved and the, the newly freed people. Uh, but nothing nothing seems to help. In the, the Grand Review at the end of the war, you point out that the soldiers uh, showed their appreciation for him, that he got a huge ovation, and his troops did everywhere they they marched. So somebody thought well of him, but not, not the people in command, I guess. When Sherman's um, uh, troops came marching up Pennsylvania Avenue on the second day of the Grand Review, so his old comrades and the Army of the Potomac um, had already had their day in the sun, and so they're lining up along the parade route, and the accounts, um, first-person accounts written in the newspapers of the day point out how Williams received overwhelming uh, salutes from those soldiers, very touching to see how he was treated by those under whom and with whom he had served before. And then in a chapter about remembrance, mentioned that earlier, mm-hmm. I tried to go back and and see how many post-war accounts might have mentioned him, and almost universally, they're all positive from, from regimental um, histories on up. They talk about him and, and what kind of leader he was, uh, what, what stalwart leadership he provided, and I, I kind of wish the title of the book had been um, Old Pop, uh, P-A-P, mm-hmm which is his nickname. He shared it with George Thomas. And I think that's really a representation of how he was regarded by the men whom he led. They, they looked to him as a father figure. Uh, he was at the front line. He led capably, and he just never tooted his own horn. And therefore, um, he didn't get the recognition that, that he deserved until maybe this book. <laughs> Well, hope, hopefully this will help reverse that. At the end of the book, you talk about the historiography, uh, uh, about what histori- about first about what the soldiers wrote. As you mentioned, the regimental histories that the, the veterans wrote, when they mention Williams at all, it's, it's flattering. He is old pop. They all liked him. Uh, Batchelder's history of Gettysburg speaks favorably of him. Uh, but in terms of scholarly treatment, then he, he doesn't get much... Play. We've talked about Quaife's edition of Williams's letters from right around the time of the centennial. Um, trivia bit: there is a a Quaife uh, 
and Tuttle Family Scholarship here at East Carolina University. Uh, the same same person had some connection here, and I've forgotten what it is, but I recall seeing that scholarship and thinking, That's I know that name. Yes. Uh, yeah. But then we don't have scholars writing about him. You mentioned the dissertation uh, from Michigan State, uh, early 1980s. Do you know why that wasn't published? Uh, and Quaif, as you pointed out, died shortly after the letter edition came out, so he was not there to talk it up. And uh, then the, the the dissertation that might have become a biography, that I've not read it myself. I don't know if it doesn't have the quality. Do you have any idea why it never made it into print? I don't. As I said, I thought it was uh, very comprehensive and well-written, so I do not know why it didn't make it into print. And really, I think the, the most uh, prominent Civil War scholar who did write about Williams was mm-hmm. Albert um, Castell, uh, I believe mm-hmm. is how you pronounce it, from Michigan. Right. But he didn't really write an entire book about it. It was more in the nature of uh, chapter treatment um, or vignettes in other books. So I'm not sure why uh, that uh, that preeminent scholar didn't do more. Perhaps, you know, the publication of the letters was seen by many as kind of enough. Um, it's a full account almost of what happened during the war from his perspective. So mm. perhaps that's why. Interesting, yeah. But Castell certainly was not shy with his opinions, and uh, uh, you know would have been quite the advocate had he gone ahead and, and written such a biography. Uh, the the Bison Books edition of Williams' Letters, as, as you noted, is uh, edited by or introduced by Gary Gallagher, who's uh, known to everyone listening to the show, I think, and he generally speaks well of Williams' career. You make an interesting point that. Uh, uh, John Matsui's book, The First Republican Army, which uh, we've discussed on this show a few years ago when it came out, argues that the Army of Virginia, the Pope's army, was an ideological army, that the troops, that it was not led by West Pointers and it was not led by conservatives. Uh, it was led by people like Pope who were interested in smashing slavery to some extent, and Williams is part of that army, uh, which in turn, Matsui doesn't push this, but it does suggest maybe that's uh, why the West Point clique didn't like him so well, although you'd think that would make Stanton and, and Lincoln perhaps more favorable. Well, there's so much to, to talk about and think about. I apologize for rambling on there, but I just sort of burst out with a response, and we've gotten to the end of our hour before you know it. Uh, but listeners, if you want to find out, join the, the uh, leave the ranks of the uninitiated, find out more about Alpheus S. Williams, uh, get the book Michigan's Civil War Citizen General, Alpheus S. Williams, by Jack Dempsey, who has been our guest tonight. Jack, it's uh, a pleasure talking with you, as it always is. It's been an honor and a pleasure, Jerry. Thank you so much. And listeners, as always, thank you for listening to Civil War Talk Radio. Thank you for embarking on a part of American history this week. Civil War Talk Radio with Jerry Prokopovich can be heard live every Wednesday at 4 p.m. Pacific Time, 7 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Have a good week.